Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. This is Every Record Ever Recorded, a field guide to the music of Earth. I'm Hannah, and my guest today is Kevin No, musician, longtime fan, and master's candidate in marriage and family therapy. Give me a minute, it's relevant. If you're listening with small children, they are about to learn some strong new vocab words. We're here to talk about the polyvalent, tranced-out rhythmic bangings known as industrial music. Uh, industrial music. Mm-hmm. So when I try to explain it to people in a single sentence, I say that it's more of a tradition than it is a genre or sound. A host of ideas relating to music and culture that have a couple of signature sounds. Most Western music is interested in melody and harmony. Industrial music is interested in timber. So it's like the specific quality of the sound rather than the notes it's making in sequence. Special care to noise, in quotes, non-traditional sound sources. So like... It's about finding unusual sounds or sourcing unusual sounds through samples. So industrial music as a music is about timber and about rhythm. This is worth repeating. And about rhythm. There's a pretty limited spectrum, a a specific but limited spectrum of what people are interested in singing about. Love songs aren't very common. Lyrically, you'll have people talking more about psychology or like ideas around cultural engineering, and there's a persistent drive towards what's perceived to be the transgressive. Mm. So sometimes that'll be sexual, sometimes that'll be like in terms of like people are interested in thinking about what the limits of being human are. To imagine the limits of consciousness or to like approach those limits of consciousness through like trans states or like people are looking for some sort of edge. So is that what makes it a genre, if there isn't one unifying sound? There is a sound, but there just is more than one sound. So it can be confusing to people because it's like, is it angry disco music or is it like ambient jazz robot music, like, you know, noise? (laughs) Like, what is it? Well, it's kind of both. The official record that you'll find in a book like Assimilate by S. Alexander Reed, which is a great book for people who want to get a little deeper into this, is that you had a lot of people in various places, but mainly in North England and the west coast of the U.S., who are taking mid-century avant-garde composers, principles, or ideas like Steve Reich or John Cage, and applying them to pop music. Or similarly, people who are interested in like, the farther out edge of jazz, like Albert Ayers or um, Ornette Coleman, and applying those to pop music. Some people who are like interested in working in something that was like shorter form, that wasn't compositional, but were like, what about chance procedures, or what about ambiance, or what about non-traditional sound sources? Imaginary Landscape Number no. 4 is often cited as like one of the earliest industrial records, or like as pretty seminal as, that's a John Cage song, you don't know. It's made all with turntables. Cool. It's like um, six turntables playing notes or tones. So the bifurcation consists of industrial music as a type of ambient music, what I like to sometimes think of as negative psychedelia. It's psychedelic in the sense that it's uh, focused in terms of inner space, both lyrically and sound-wise. If there's a rhythm, it's about trance. The sounds are about sort of like creating a sense of space, and the lyrics tend to be about like subjective internal experience or like exploratory kind of feelings. And the other half of the bifurcation is regimented, severe, Teutonic, non-funky rhythm, like white rhythm. 
And in fact, it's been proposed, and this is probably going to, this makes me uncomfortable at times and will make others uncomfortable probably, is that this is the whitest form of popular music. That like it has no relationship to the blues. Arguable. Maybe one wants to ask, why would we make such an argument? I, it hardly needs to be said that I identify as an anti-racist. But as an anti-racist, I think it's important for white people to think about their whiteness. How can I be who I am in a way that is responsible? If declaring industrial music a white form of music is valuable in that sense, then I think it's, val- then it's valuable. Yeah. You know, as an anti-oppression musician or artist in general, like I always think about what I'm producing in terms of like my maleness or my sexuality or my whiteness. Like the music that I make is definitely white men's music because that's who I am. But I endeavor to make it in that like as critical as possible. So yeah, this bifurcation is between a kind of like negatively psychedelic ambient music and a type of like dance music for people with strong feelings. <laughs> I think it's the best way to That's say. That's a full cool quote. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like it's dance music. Like it, there's a rhythm in it, but the rhythm is like not free or happy. When industrial music approaches positive emotions, it approaches them in a way that's like ecstatic. It's not about, like, my love for that person. It's about, like, that love getting lost in this, like, larger feeling of transcendence. Mm. Which gives it something in common with house music. Uh, which it's, is a, uh, yeah. very black, very gay. It's a function of that moment in culture, because both of those musics were emerging in, like, 1986 through 90, you know? Mm-hmm. And the technology was the same. Is it fair to say that industrial music exists because of the technology? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, interesting about that. Part of that, the aforementioned bifurcation in the mid-80s, there's a trifurcation. The same principles and intentions and feelings that were produced through early machinery were then people attempted to pursue those same kinds of lines of inquiry mm. through drum machines and synthesizers. And then a third group of people try to pursue those same kinds of feelings and thoughts through acoustic instruments, folk instruments. Industrial music post-1985 is sometimes referred to as post-industrial, which is, again, like a horrible genre description because it describes two different things. It describes vampire dance music, and it also describes this kind of, like, world of musicians, sometimes also called neo-folk, who were singing about the same subjects, thinking the same types of thoughts, often using the same types of graphic production in their records and uh, same types of fashions, but were playing like hurdy-gurdies and accordions and acoustic guitar and string sections and these kinds of things, and using those instruments to produce drones, trance music through acoustic instruments. So you have the genre such as it is beginning in the 1970s of people using technology in a kind of an ad hoc way, where it's like people, perhaps they were motivated by drugs. Perhaps they're motivated by avant-garde art. I don't know. Maybe a combo of both. But people were like, these machines or like this landscape of sound has a musical quality to my demented ear. Like the sound of the factory or the sound of traffic has a musical quality. The toaster making noises, whatever it is. And so there was this group of people independently from one another who were exploring what happens if you stick a fan to the front of a guitar and just let the fan spin the strings. Or like scientific instrumentation used to used to include these things that would just produce a waveform. They were used to test things. Mm-hmm. But you could just like turn on this machine and it will make a tone and you can change the tone. The idea is that these people were exploring sound through these means that were not strictly musical, 
one of my other pet uh, descriptions for industrial music is music made without instruments. Mm. Musicians of that generation were often also interested in uh, visual presentations because it's not very, you can't rock out on junk. Mm. So they would use what would at that time would have been like close to the cutting edge of corporate presentation material, ba- batteries of slides, projectors, and films. And they needed this because they, they needed some sort of spectacle. That's the like less polite part of it. But I think that they were also interested in like, how can I make the complete art? How can I like? Mm-hmm. How can I promote the same aesthetic principles through like the visuals, the visual track? A lot of these groups were also performance artists. Throbbing Gristle, who are credited as the originators of the genre, or at least the popularizers of the genre, were a performance art troupe before they were a group mm. who would do absolutely spectacularly horrible things. <laughs> you know, like their, their descriptions of what they did. Their their performance art group was called Coom C O U M Transmissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would do all these spectacularly disgusting things, and the thread, the aesthetic thread from those visual actions into their sound is pretty direct. Throbbing Gristle is the musical version of the Viennese actionists. I'm going to leave you and the internet to discuss the gory details of Coombe transmissions. You can decide whether you want to based on the fact that a famous description of their antics includes the phrase, whilst pouring maggots on it. Here's Throbbing Gristle. It's amazing to think now that somebody would have had to have pioneered kind of neo-militaristic fashion, but that group did that. That was what their shtick was. It was unusual for the time, or perhaps for some people shocking, to see a group just manipulating machines. There was one proper musician in the sense of playing a proper instrument on stage. They visually were between withdrawn and hostile. They would place a bank of floodlights facing out into their audience to blind people. They would perform in kind of like quasi-fascist regalia. Their, their logo is derived from the, the Waffen-SS double-S lightning bolts. So was their imagery a whatever-pisses-off-my-parents sort of thing, where they were interested in the effect rather than the content, or were they actual fascists? And if you appear to be endorsing fascism, does it matter whether or not you mean it? 
It's hard to be sure what the intention of the people involved was, especially because they were four people with really, really strong opinions about different things. Mm. It's easier to talk about what their effect was. And what their effect in doing that was, was to produce a standard for this way of playing with fascism in industrial music, which is like very common, like old traditional, you know, like you'll still see it in the way people dress now, even though we have a very different relationship to fascism currently in the United States than we did. You know, it's not a, th- a thing that we play with anymore. But at the time when Throbbing Gristle did this, it didn't seem to necessarily be about shock value so much as about it's like they're ingesting fascism to, to regurgitate something that wasn't poisonous. Later, I asked Kevin to elaborate a little on this. He said that many industrial groups presented negative materials as a part of life and in a sense equivalent to the other parts of life, for example, romance or dancing, that are more usually subjects for pop music. He says that in industrial music, confrontation with the negative isn't merely about the cheapo shock moment, but the opportunity to move through the fear and disgust we may feel regarding some less popular aspects of human behavior and experience. Another really interesting example of this is a group called Leibach from Slovenia, whose entire existence was a kind of like ironic over-identification with totalitarianism because they were a group that they were a group of, of avant-garde kind of performance artists that lived in the, in the a Soviet satellite state. And so their whole thing is about, we are the Slovenian state band. And like, we have the Slovenian state uniform and these giant flags of, you know, like, or like our, our Leibach regalia. And like, we make this martial music about like, it is great to be a man of the country. The music is actually pretty boring, and <laughs> it, it lands different now than it used to because we have, you know, the Soviet Union isn't a thing anymore, and like totalitarianism is a real thing in the United States. But the point of it was is that they were recuperating their experience under totalitarianism. Industrial music has a tradition of like embracing and embodying the negative material in order to kind of like bioremediate it, and it, interestingly, didn't attract as many fascist adherents as music that had a a reputation for being more specifically leftist. There were more neo-Nazis in hardcore punk in the United States and in Oi in the UK than there were in industrial music. Industrial music was more the province of of like basement dwelling shut-ins. They were nerds. They weren't... Today's nerds are fascists. Yesterday's nerds were people that ended up making the computer industry. Thus becoming, if depending on how you think about it, also today's fascist, but... (laughs) (laughs) Totalitarianism by different means. The computer, the the tech industry is like a very left-wing way to be, or a very West Coast way to be totalitarianism. It's like, please don't make me uh, encounter anything uncomfortable. Right. From industrial music, I took away a philosophy of confrontation with myself around my negative material. My own music and my group know is about... It's basically an extension of my therapy where I try to think of the worst things that I had done and been and try to think about them and talk about them until they're not a problem anymore. It's deliberately confrontational, but the confrontation is directed inward, which I think is what you will have, what you'll see with some of these groups as industrial music has its progress as time goes by. I love a group called Clock DVA 
who were contemporaneous with Throdingrisel, but from a uh, and from the same Northern England kind of Northern English region. They're from Sheffield instead of Manchester. Their music is specifically psychologically interrogative. These guys are interesting too because they represent the strong jazz thread, which became part of popular music in the UK in general mm-hmm. around 1979-1980. A lot of groups started to be interested in American kind of like black American styles but like through a UK like a white UK filter mm. so everything is like a little stiffer and darker but yeah clock dva were obvious huge jazz fans Well, while that was playing, we, we started talking off the mic about the different facets. So so that would have been strong jazz. Um, yeah. We also have disco for people with strong feelings. Right. And uh, Renaissance trance, which you said is... You know, these are like very broad kind of cartoony descriptions mm-hmm. of these mini genres within this like relatively ill-defined genre itself. But as we were talking before, there's a bifurcation between this kind of initial ambient noise-based music... And then in the 1980s, people either tired of working in that specific mode and moved towards music that was more traditional in the rhythmic sense and made music that was essentially really hard European disco, or what we're calling disco for people with hard feelings. Or they moved into this, this uh, at that time, completely brand new and weird genre, which is now called neo-folk, hurdy-gurdies or accordions or acoustic guitars or... Uh, sometimes older things there's this whole by the time you get to the early 90s there are people who are specifically reproducing the music of hildegard von bingen or like other types of like rediscovered i I uh, think i owned that record you probably do (laughs) (laughs) Uh, or like you know she was a wild composer she made all this kind of music and it's exactly in the the post-industrial pocket because she was this visionary who was at the frontier of human experience 
You know, she was like completely possessed by God and possessed by her experience. So yeah, there's this 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 other genre emerged called neo folk um, or post industrial, which is a little bit more inclusive because it should also include people like Coil, former members of Throbbing Gristle, or a former member of Throbbing Gristle. Coil were an amazing group that were consistently experimental. They were a husband and husband team of Peter Christofferson of Throbbing Gristle and John Balance, who were legitimate occultists, at least at first, who were interested in kind of like male sexual magic, uh, and their early records re- strongly reflect that. Uh, other groups like Current 93, who are extremely long-lived, are still still making music, and were explored all types of occultism. They are now kind of like Christian mystics, but they had been through like, Satanism and kind of like uh, some obscure cults. The other leading light of neo-folk music their name is now a dirty word in some circles. They're called Death in June. And Death in June is interesting. They made the shift from more traditional kind of dark electronic music into this neo-folk genre. And along the way, adopted legitimate fascist politics and became arguably the first legitimately totalitarian or legitimately fascist industrial group. And have set a standard which is luckily pretty m- minimally followed but when you find extreme rightists in this kind of like broad genre, you'll find them working in the neo-folk, in the neo-folk mini genre. This music, which is minimally angry, but has a ton of feeling because the focus of that music is on great, big, deep, transcendental feelings. And uh, history reflects that it's pretty easy to get people to attach transcendental feelings to ideas of the nation and family. Mm. And so that's sort of the, wh- the means by which this political current entered this music is that like people who are more interested in connecting with what they thought was an authentic experience didn't mind that that authentic experience contained a politically odious to me element. It's interesting to think about too, because another one of the definitive qualities of industrial music, the meta genre, the larger genre is that it's consciously modernist music. It's like an attempt for people to search for the future and again, history reflects that one of the places that we find when we search for the future is the past. That, like, fascism was a type of modernism in its inception. Mm. And that we are making America great again, rather yeah. than making it great for the first time. We're returning to a, a fictional past. A fictional past of ethnic purity, uh, you know, for Germans or Americans or Norwegians or whoever it might be. So, yeah, the, even, even, the fa- even this fascist neo-folk or even this notion of neo-folk, this like return to the pastoral, is a type of modernism. Industrial music's intention or mission is to locate the future. In most cases, that future is a dystopian future, but its eyes are looking forward. But let's go back to Coil. Coil. Oh, let's do talk about Coil. Cool. Okay. So the piece I'm going to, I'd like to play two pieces, clips from two pieces. The first one is called Ostia, and it is a sort of poetic imagining of the murder of Pierre Paolo Pasolini. Uh, He was killed in a place called Ostia by being struck with a car.
And the other is a, a song called Love's Secret Domain, which is a sort of psychotic bossa nova that's some kind of about HIV and kind of about love. Okay, so going back to the beginning in a more organized fashion, can we make a chronology of industrial music, starting with the first groups that would have called themselves industrial, since I assume the early influences did not? Oh, no, no, no. The term was coined in the 70s. It's attributed to Monte Cazaza, who was a San Franciscan, who was good buddies with the Throbbing Gristle people. 
it was part of this like West Coast to London kind of exchange that produced the culture. So one of the other centers of this type of aesthetic was on the West Coast, specifically in San Francisco. Cool. There's a tiny handful of really interesting artists from San Francisco who were working roughly in the genre at the time. There's a guy called Zev, Z apostrophe E-V, who is this sort of like whacked out like Central European Jewish mystic who produced performance art music that was based in his kind of Kabbalistic calculations. He would like produce metal sculpture that was meant to be played. It would be like a series of cans strung together with zip ties that he would like dance with. And the effect is that you get the specifically tonal aspect of the metal. You would get the like note of the metal, mm. you know, sometimes it would just be oscillating white noise, but other times you'd get kind of colors. So yeah, the term industrial music came from Monte Cazaza, who had been exchanging male art with Genesis Peorge, the front person of Throbbing Gristle. Male art is one of the predecessors to industrial music as a music because it, male art was responsible for some of the development of the other aesthetic aspects. People who were super interested in William Burroughs' cut-up method, or like shock as a value, or like people who were interested in Charles Manson, a subject I find personally really boring. But in 1974, it was a big deal, so people were sending mail back and forth about it. And then those people eventually picked up instruments and became Factrix on the West Coast, and Throbbing Gristle in the UK. A lot of those people who were involved then became involved in either the artier aspects of the punk scene, or industrial music, which is almost the same thing. It's like the same group of people. There's a, like, you know, as genres, as genres do, there's a lot of bleed over. You know, some of the same techniques and ideas were used all, in all, by all kinds of people all over the place. So getting back to the chronology, uh, we can think about modernist composition in the 20th century as being a type of predecessor to industrial music. So John Cage was mentioned. Steve Reich should be mentioned. There's a Greek composer whose name I'm going to mispronounce. That's Yanis Xenakis. Uh, often cited by a lot of these musicians as an, as an influence. Ethnological recordings were a big deal for people because they provided a different way of thinking about rhythm as ambiance or rhythm as trance. Strangely, a lot of these early industrialists, like the first generation of industrialists, cited Martin Denny. his early records are full of idiophonic instruments. But part of his shtick would be that he would go someplace and get like a Balinese harp and then play that in the tropical fruit lounge. So that, <laughs> that was, that was part of what was going on. So people were like interested in, again, this interest in like, that's an unusual timber. That timber drives the music. That timber drives the feeling of the song. So mm. people were interested in that. So move forward from this ill-defined early 20th century vibe to the early 70s, where you had artists like in European artists specifically, like like continental artists such as Tangerine Dream, very significantly Kraftwerk, slightly less significantly Can, but like Kraftwerk adopting electronics as a legitimate way to make music and actually making songs out of it. Not a lot of people were taking them that seriously at the time, but some certain people did. And Kraftwerk are the direct, the beginning of the direct lineage to the kind of bifurcation in the mid 80s.
artists were working in that sort of like like electronic music mode before then, before the mid eighties. But the mid eighties is when things get really serious, and we'll talk about that in a little while. So you have these kind of like European prog artists who are a little less focused on demonstrative musicianship, like you got from somebody like. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer or something. You know, people who are not guitar virtuosos, but were instead like, what are the limits of sound? Mm. What are like, how can we explore what sound means? Amundul in Germany, a lot of these groups were German. Can, really interesting in terms of their trance approach. Uh, and then in the UK, slightly afterward, you'll get a group like Hawkwind. Same kind of ideas can, but there's this endless sound, this endless repetitive sound that does things to the head. Move a little bit forward and you have the inception of industrial music in the UK. So groups the, the groups that emerged more or less simultaneous to one another, Throbbing Gristle, Clock DVA, The Human League, Cabaret Voltaire, were all working at the same time in ignorance of one another and all exploring the same similar ideas through similar methods. So like the misuse of technology to create these landscapes of sound that were then spaces where people could lyrically talk about negative material, or in some cases into probing material. The clip of Throbbing Gristle we heard is a good example of somebody who is that those lyrics, the lyrics to 6660s are somebody trying to think their way into their own negative space to deal with it. Not industrial music's purview, but alone. But like that's that's like a really common thing that we hear. Mm. Okay, so that's this that's the mid seventies to the late seventies. Roughly simultaneous to this, you have a separate trend in the UK and also in the continent, specifically in Belgium and Germany, of people using what technology they had at the time rhythmically. Deutsche American Freundschaft mm -hmm. (DAF), who were um, two dudes from Portugal and Spain. <laughs> no way, I did not know that. <laughs> who, who lived in Germany um, okay. and insisted on singing in German because they wanted to make German, not American music. They wanted to make music that was anti American in its Europeanness. And uh, they were also super gay. And uh, their music is very gay, and ha but in a political way, in the sense that it's about like the politics of ecstasy, it's about like sexuality as an outlaw position really amazing music and again this sort of like there's a direct line from them to Kraftwerk and from from Kraftwerk to DAF and from DAF to this explosion in the mid 80s of all these groups DAF were the form the formators of what is now called electronic body music mm -hmm. electronic body music which is what I sarcastically refer to as disco for people with hard feelings In the 1980s, you have people elsewhere in the continent beginning to experiment with like electronics and rhythm. With synthesizers, there's already an automatic attention to timber because you can't make a synthesizer make a normal noise. Or if you do, then you're boring. 
Um, <laughs> that is an option. Yeah, being op- being boring is an option, and there were loads and loads of records that used synthesizers to synthesize existing instruments, and they are in the dump where they belong. Whereas people that were like, "What does this thing do?" You know, like those records live on. So that's happening in the in, in the early '80s. You'll have the very early records by Front Two Four Two, who are from Belgium and are another major exponent of electronic body music. They would eventually become pop stars at the end of the '80s. We'll talk about that in a minute. Simultaneous to this, in the mid '80s, you have an international tape trading scene that ex- explodes before the internet, before even the primitive internet. You'll have people who are making music that are sending each other cassettes from all over the world. Everybody is kind of doing this thing everywhere. Some of those people are also experimenting with electronics and making rhythmic music. By the time you get to like 1984, you have the major bifurcation I've discussed. 84, 86, you'll have people moving into an electronic mode, into more electronic body music type music, or into this neo-folk music. The lines were not initially as strong between classical and classic industrial music and neo-folk. The same artists used the same types of techniques and equipment for a while before they were like, let's just slide into string sections. Here we start to see a lot of sonic crossover between industrial music and pop music because of a mutual interest in new sound technology. As the technology developed, the same tech, the same machines and techniques were being used by different people all over the place. So like a friend of mine down in San Diego does nights where he plays early industrial music, early industrial dance music, like the mid-80s stuff, next to Latin freestyle music. Because it's the same sounds. The two musics mix together perfectly. Or similarly, the early Janet Jackson albums, Rhythm Nation 1814 and Control, have some very industrial noises on them. Clinging metal, scraping metal, like weird ch- uh, chunks cut out of symphonies. The orchestra hit basically came from industrial dance music. And was portmanteaued wonderfully in the early 90s into the jazz hit by New Jack Swing Music. Getting back toward our primary subject, there were some pop artists that were a little more culturally industrial as well. Specifically, a great place to look is at Depeche Mode. Depeche Mode's sound moved from this sort of like... Like four boys you'd want to take home to mom that happen to have a drum machine to this like. I feel I'm down on my knees. Pretty dark music with themes about like heroin addiction and sex fetishism and these kinds of things that were like absolutely the hobby horse of people making the mu- this music at this time. Of the people making this electronic music. It was a real strong emphasis on weird sex up through the like early 90s. But as more mainstream artists adopted more of these kinds of subject matters and techniques, that sound shifted to the mainstream and people who were on the margins began to occupy more of the mainstream. And so by 1988-89, a group like Front 242, who were the province of the underground for the last, whatever, five, six years, were being mentioned on Beverly Hills 90210. What do you think about a segue from Front 242 to Porno for Pyros? Great. Oh, wait, I want you to hear something. No way. Yeah, so this band was from Belgium, and it's the 80s, and they're watching the United States. And there's nothing comparable in Belgium to the, like, emergent religious right. The, like, commercialized, government-integrated 
popular religious rite that we had here. So their records from the from the eighties are chock full of weird samples of like television preachers. They were they were like preoccupied with it. To it, this song, "Welcome to Paradise." Front 242 is a really dumb group, but they're really fun. And I think that part of, part of their shtick is that they're aware how silly they are, especially if you watch the videos. They dress up in these kind of like leather superhero commando outfits. And they're like, there's a really like crazy paramilitary thing. In a way, and I've been thinking about this, and I'm glad to be able to say this on air, is I think that industrial music was made by the Vietnam War. Interesting. Do you see how, where I'm going? Spell it out for me. So like... This form of dance music emerges that's hyper-masculine. There's a huge amount of like militaristic imagery, militaristic f- clothing, songs about helicopters, this kind of thing. And like, in keeping with the tradition of working through negative material by embodying it, people are dealing with the militarization of society at that time. As a little kid in the 1980s, I didn't have a critical perspective on G.I. Joe or like Brambo, or like all these kinds of cultural influences that like we're strong enough now that this is the subculture that I've adopted. That like I'm so comfortable wearing this like heavily militarized like I you know there's all this military surplus shit all over my room and I wear boots every day and this kind of thing. People in the United States had to find some way to deal with a, the ten years of trauma and PTSD that the Vietnam War imparted on them. And what we ended up doing, whoever's idea it really was, because I don't, I don't put shit like this on the people. I think that the powers that be were like, we have trauma, we're going to turn it into like triumphalism, you know. And so we had this major, we had this cultural shift that horrified people that survived the '60s. That like it was cool to like have an F-14 T-shirt or like top the movie Top Gun. There was no reason why Top Gun should have been made. That should have been horrifying to people. But instead, it was like a place that they could put the feelings of like defeat and chaos and horror. There's this whole cultural thread in the 1980s that's reflected in and kind of like assimilated by 
the, this music and this imagery. I don't think that the Vietnam War was ever really adequately dealt with, and it makes me really curious about how the Gulf War is going to be dealt, or the you know the, the Afghan conflict and the Iraqi conflict, unless we're already seeing it in the form of the present resurgence of neo-fascism in the U.S. I would have taken G.I. Joe over real neo-fascists smashing up protests with their cars. Would we have had real neo-fascists or so many real neo-fascists without G.I. Joe? I mean, the whole, the positivity around the military that you're talking about in the 80s. Yeah. It's hard to be comfortable with violence. It's hard to be comfortable with heavy weaponry without getting habituated to it, you know? I wonder. The people who I see who are the most visible neo-fascists are people who are my father's age or people who are in their early 20s. Perhaps they're like a little more accustomed to like pretend killing, but like I was saturated in that shit. There was nothing I loved better than video games as a child. It was a really wonderful place for a person that was profoundly disempowered to be. Okay, so if industrial music isn't combining with G.I. Joe and Nintendo to generate a bunch of internet Nazis, what is its social function? There's this sticky wicket about industrial music, which is that like surface-wise, it has a huge amount of extremely problematic imagery. Fascist imagery is common as grass, but also imagery of sexual violence used to be pretty common. You know, people would people were interested in thinking and talking about that. A group that I love, Clock DVA, has a song about a child murderer. I sincerely believe that they were interested in talking about that because they wanted to look into the abyss. Not because they were, in, and that looking into the abyss has a specific value where you're like, I have taken that information in and I'm ready to deal with it. Industrial music mirrors the process it mirrors in a sense the process that like a a therapist treating you for ptsd might suggest that you prepare yourself by presenting a framework of context and then work through that material like look directly at the material a trauma related disorder has to do with an inability to be with that fact trauma and recovery strongly recommended judith herman feminist psychologist really good book uh, and basically wrote basically, basically that is the text on PTSD and industrial music is in a sense, maybe not for everybody, but for some of us working in the same vein of like in a world of horrors, in a world of hate, can I get close enough to death or can I get close enough to this pain that I can live with it? It's obvious to me anyway, that like the subculture at large is a place for people that feel too much. In all of our many genres and subgenres, we are all looking at like some horror. You wouldn't need to constantly reinscribe that protest unless it was had something to do with something inside you. You know, the point of what we're doing here is that we're having an emotional engagement with the world. Industrial music's persistent emphasis on transgression is, to me, about exactly that. It's about like bioremediation. You know, this bugged me all through the editing process. How do we know that this music isn't going for cheap shock value? Most industrial music doesn't make an explicit point that violence and hatred are bad things. How do we know that somebody singing about child murders is feeling and processing the grief of the world and not getting secret sociopathic jollies out of it? I asked Kevin. Basically, his response was, because of the way that art works, it's not an easy line to draw. The way he put it was, I think it would be a mistake to consider music as some sort of prescriptive teaching tool. But... I do believe, and there's research to support this, that the narratives you focus on tend to shape your worldview and even normalize behaviors. What makes matters even more complicated is the fact that explicitly saying this behavior is naughty doesn't really seem to help people think that the behavior is naughty. In fact, much of the worst parts of mainstream culture depend on this titillation while decrying. 
think of Jerry Springer as one tiny example. And actually, the bioremediation depends directly, in my humble opinion, on presenting the negative material as a fact. Because opening up the space in which anything can be said, no matter how dark, gives the listener an opportunity to identify and process their own unspeakable experiences. So there might not be a difference between horror porn and bioremediation. The difference may ultimately lie in the listener. It's the cost of democracy that we must, i.e. we may choose to, let some legit sociopath get his kick singing about such things, and that there may be legit sociopathic listeners consuming such things. But if it were possible to do a demographic study, I'd imagine we see more sociopaths listening to whatever music is the most popular and acceptable at the moment than 30-year-old avant-garde music, or not listening to music at all. It might be bullshit to somebody, but I think it's real. We're in the midst of the chronology. Everything's bullshit to somebody. That's true. Fuck them. Um, we are um, not done with the chronology yet. Let me take you a little bit farther forward. Okay. Okay, so we hit the mid-80s. There was a sudden critical, or critical and popular acceptance of this music. Simultaneous to the UK and Europe, a thing happened in the United States, which is called Wax Tracks Records. Uh, Wax Tracks Records was super important because it was the first time that industrial music had a sound that was American. And it introduced a huge, giant horse syringe of queerness, disco, and fun into the genre. Wax Tracks Records was a record store and label owned by, I believe, Jim Nash. Super campy guy, lived with his husband, ran this record label, and it was just like an open door for all these musicians to come through and make all this music, and it was like a house. It was a house. They were like, all these musicians and all these groups were crossing over and making projects with one another. A lot of well-known and well-loved artists and musicians from the period were Wax Tracks artists. Um, they had a specific sound, they had a specific bass sound. They paid a lot more attention to vocal samples, but maybe most importantly, they was, it was really campy campy and fun and cute and silly. F familiar names for most people will be Ministry, who are, are going to be important in the next step of the chronology, The Revolting Cox, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, who are a wonderful group and talk about campy. In addition to being campier and gayer, it was also a little more macho and guitar-oriented, which also makes it more American, which then set the stage for the next sort of iteration of industrial music. At this point, the bifurcation has mainly slid over to the disco side because it's making money. So there's a lot, a lot, people are a lot more motivated to work in this specific mode of like, okay, you get like a drum machine, get some dance beats, distort the rhythm so that they're harder, like make the hardest sounds you can, program the hardest synthesizer sounds you can, and uh, sing about something nihilistic and alienating. So those people managed to make a bunch of money somehow, particularly Ministry, who got to headline Lollapalooza and like had a bunch of world, uh, a bunch of U.S. tours. Their sound, which combined aggressive electronic disco with heavy metal, was so accessible to so many people that it completely took over, and like industrial music became a subgenre of heavy metal, which is where you get Nine Inch Nails from and Marilyn Manson 
and then eventually where you get new metal from. Like a band like Disturbed or Corn grew up listening to Ministry. Totally blew everything out of the water. Made everybody made the made everything a lot dumber. In the meantime, people are quietly working in these other modes. Like people are still making neo folk. People are still even making uh, kind of like industrial ambient noise music. It changes with time and technology, but it's still happening. Things get very dumb for a long time. The day is saved all the way at the other end of the nineties. The dumbness happens at like nineteen ninety two or three. All the way at the other end of the nineties, after the after the uh, the whole landscape has been ruined by this kind of guitar music. Back in Europe, people are making a new music that is derived from some of this traditional material, but has stripped away the machismo and the guitars, and has produced a new emphasis on melodic complexity. So in 1999, you get this music called Future Pop. Leading lights of Future Pop are groups like Wolfsheim, who some people find unbearably corny now, but I think are still wonderful, or Covenant, who just recently toured, or, uh, let's see, Assemblage 23 is a good example. The sonic focus has moved for the first time into melody. They're working from a tradition roughly established by Depeche Mode. It's like pop, electronic, industrial, but as an underground music. Lyrically, it's about the biggest possible subjects, like the fate of humanity, what happens after we die, ecological catastrophe, those like swelling giant feelings of cosmicness that you get when you look up at night. These, these kind of like transcendental ideas become the subject of matter of this music. A culture emerges specific to this music, which is more or less like the like goth industrial dance night culture that you have now. People had been dancing at nightclubs to this music since the mid '80s, but like the the form it takes now is is this like all all the dance music had blended into like basically one big idea. That like the difference between house and techno and industrial had kind of disappeared by the 2000s. The people were the same artists were working in across genres, and the same types of sounds were occurring across genres. Get my 
So now, instead of talking about violence and weird sex and other transgressive topics, we're talking about feelings, which, if you've just spent 15 years singing about war crimes, could be considered transgressive. Also, I'm sorry about the peanut butter sandwich that makes an audio cameo in this segment. Live and learn. People wanted to talk about things like, you know, alienation or loss or sadness. There's another wonderful song from the period called Disappoint. That's a letter to a suicided father. Pretty heavy song, but it's a great song. It, it really helps helps me feel to like go to this dance floor and do this kind of dance floor ritual and like let other people's grief stand in for the grief that I can't articulate correctly, which I, is what I'm doing when I go to clubs. I don't know what other people are doing, but I'm there because I need some sort of vehicle for those feelings some for whatever feelings i have and like that's a good one you know to dance to dance and mourn i think more people experience the genre through dance than they do through music production themselves which is a shame because in my fantasy of the world everybody should be an artist or musician of some kind but not everybody has the where has the interest but i would say that most people that experience the genre experience it through the club there's one in most cities, even small cities. They're a really unique kind of social atmosphere. In my lifetime, I have never seen anybody get picked up at a goth club. People don't talk. Talking happens outside. Like, once you get inside, you don't, like... I mean, it's okay to smile at people, but, like, you're not there to socialize in a way. It's like being alone with other people. You go there with whatever you're bringing with you there, and you be there by yourself with others. So you said you've literally never seen anybody get picked up at a goth club. Yeah. What are we talking about goth? Oh, <laughs> so in my chronology, I skipped some steps. It's important to distinguish between goth and industrial, just like it would be between like punk and industrial. I mean, all these things are part of, they're all tendrils on the family root, you know, but they're different cultures. One of the interesting differences between goth and industrial is that goth is more specifically feminine or like intergendered. Goth as a culture is about the relaxation of barriers, the like swampity loss of self into something, whereas industrial is rigid, hard, firm, rigid. These rigid beats are like these like very these, like discussing these like scientific ideas. So goth is not industrial, but many people were fans of the other genre. And in the chronology around the mid '80s, I skipped the step where the two began to squish together. People who were interested in goth feelings started using industrial production techniques. People who were interested in industrial feelings started using like goth guitar parts or whatever, you know. Like so, the two genres began to blurb together, uh, and the exemplar of this blurbing together would have to be Skinny Puppy. Super important. They were from Vancouver, so they were the first really significant North American import in the genre. They spoke strongly in favor of animal rights at a time when that wasn't a really big deal for most people. And in terms of their contribution to the dialectic of industrial music, they introduced this very gothic kind of like organicity. Their instrumentation was electronic, but they used electronics in this way that produced this sense of like dankness and rottenness and softness, like all these kinds of like really unrigid feelings. Listening to some of the records is like watching a film. You can dance to it, but you can also sort of sit there and listen in terror. Skinny Puppy, I think, signified the cross hybridization of goth and industrial. So now when you go to a club, people will say you're going to the goth club, even though it could be any number of like slices of subgenre.
I shudder to think of the quantity of drugs that they must have been on to make that music. Well, why is that? Well, two reasons. One is, for many of us, at least the myth goes that you discover aesthetic things on drugs. That, like your drugs guide you in a certain way. You're like, oh, this is interesting. At the time that that record was made, which was about 1988, the machines that they had to use to program that were extremely laborious. A group like Wolfsign, that we, the previous clip we played, was uh, super lush. There was a lot going on. There were like, numerous kind of like melodic bits going on there. Whereas Front 242's Welcome to Paradise, which we heard a couple clips ago, was comparatively sparse. Although for the time, Front 242 were a pretty sonically complex group. It was a lot of work for them to make that stuff happen, whereas relatively easy for Wolfsheim. They had the multi-track computer technology that I use. You know, you could really, and you know, synthesizers get smaller and cheaper, and software begins to replace synthesizers, and sampling becomes something that you can do entirely in the computer with, like, instead of having hardware interfaces. The technology will let you do different things, and some technologies do make music dumber, but others don't. They just make it easier to make something weird, you know? The technology that you have will passively shape the possible outcome, you know? I try to make music that sounds as powerfully minimal as Front 242 at times, but, you know, it takes me 15 minutes to make something that sounds like a Front 242 song, and immediately I'm like, this isn't done yet! It doesn't have frosting! It doesn't have cherries! So I like, start adding frosting and cherries to things, and like, you have to control yourself sometimes, but like, frosting and cherries are exactly what makes Skinny Puppy's music interesting. They spent unimaginable hours increasing the density of their sound until their sound was nothing like electronic music that had existed until then. It was just this like incredible miasma that moved forward. It had a rhythm and everything. It was just this like dark, swampy forest of sound that had to have come from a huge investment in labor and time. But yeah, each iteration of this music that we've discussed was made possible by the changes in technology. And like as a as a kind of like genre and culture that values technology or is technophilic or at least technologically interested, it will often represent people who are like the early adopters of whatever that technology is. Going back all the way to 1980, a group like DAF borrowed the synthesizers that they had, and the synthesizers that they used in DAF were unprogrammable, often unrepeatable machines that would change when they were when the air was more moist. <laughs> so you had to be like. <laughs> 
Or like similarly, Nitsarev, a group we haven't spoken much about, but who are contemporaneous with Front 242, the synthesizer they used would allow them to program a sequence, i.e. you could press start and it would go... But it would erase itself every time you turn it off. So they had to continually program their own songs between songs on stage. A huge amount of work. You have to be a little tweaked to like be dedicated to using these machines, or the machines have to be rewarding you for some reason. When people who don't have a relationship to synthesizers and other kinds of music technology look from outside at them, they're like, that must be cheating. Like the drum machines have no soul bumper sticker that used to be a bigger deal. It's kind mm -hmm. of disappeared from the world now. But the reason that people were so invested in this is because it, there was an uh, a aspect of the sound that was intrinsically rewarding. Like the synthesizer, basically, for you who don't play them, is like a is like a a machine about exploring sound. There's all these knobs and shit all over everything, and you move these knobs slowly, and you're like, oh, that feels interesting. Oh, that's a different kind of feeling. You produce a sound that has a feeling attached to it that you like. Then you make a song. The song is driven by the timber and quality of the sound that you make. That's what makes it rewarding to people. And that's how you get a machine that is ostensibly like off the rack, you know? There's a finite number of sounds that, that this keyboard over here, for example, can make. But all these different artists are using it, and they're all using it in a different way. So while we're talking about music-making technology... We didn't play any Einstürzen in Neubaum, did we? Oh, that's incredible. I, I always think of them as like the industrial band, I think because I have seen the most Einstürzen in Neubaum tattoos. Well, most of the other bands aren't worthy of having a tattoo in that sense. I mean, Einstein and Neubauten deserve their own podcast. A great deal of what people now think of in terms of industrial content come from Einstein and Neubauten, but they don't belong in any of the delineations of genres I've described them. Yet they still belong in this kind of like umbrella definition in terms of their subject matter and their approach to sound. A lot of groups attempted to do something like what Einstein and Neubauten did, but they managed to only hit on the sort of superficial ideas of like banging metal. Um, while banging metal is wonderful, and I love banging metal myself, it's not really what Einstein and Neubauten were about. Einstein Neubauten uh, is a German word that means collapsing new buildings, uh, and they're a group that had ran from 1978 or 79 and are still running. They're sort of like the house band of Berlin, Germany now. Their music is seminal and influential in terms of their insistence on or their avoidance of using anything like traditional instrumentation. They've explained their reasons in various ways at various times. You know, sometimes the story is we had to sell the drum set to buy rent. But other times the story is we would like to find out what an anthropological recording would sound like if it was made in contemporary Europe. Or we're looking for the most primitive aspect of music. Or we want to make something which is fundamentally European or fundamentally modern. So there are all these explanations and all of them are basically equally legitimate. But the point of it is, is that Einstein and Leibauten started as a kind of a collective who made music by inventing the instruments as they went from the detritus of industrial civilization. So you'll have, uh, for example, in an early record, you'd have people squeezing styrofoam. Pouring water. Banging on oil drums, running power tools against pieces of sheet metal. 
hammering things. There was a live performance they did where they mic'd a roadway and played to that. Guitars and bass guitars do appear, but they're often played, quote, wrong, end quote. Like, uh, the bass guitar will play a single note for the entire song, or the, you know, a string will be struck and then the tuning peg will be turned. One member of the band, one of the founding members of the band, had a permanent position as their sort of inventor. So he would invent all these things, and the idea would be, first, what kind of sound can we get? Then, what can we do with that sound? Similar in a way to the synthesizer's spectrum of possibility. The guys in Einsters and Neubotten would do a thing uh, like connect a bunch of plumbing pipe together and then blow through it with an embouchure and then be like, okay, so we get this sound that sounds like a starving animal. It's called the thirsty animal. That particular instrument has a name. It's the thirsty animal. They made a thing where they put a turntable and then pointed... They took a turntable, glued a bunch of bottles to it, and then pointed an air compressor at it. And so you get this kind of, like, oscillating whistling sound. As each of these bottles passes by the air compressor, it blows over them like you do over a bottle. <laughs> and get a sound. Their mission was, or, like, their, their commandment was to, like, explore sound in this way. Explore what was available to them. And from that sound comes the feeling. What ended up being spoken through these sounds were often songs of alienation and confusion and like maybe most often this uh defiant sense of the single the singularity and the dignity of the of the person singing so a lot of the entries and about songs are about like this sort of like lone burning soul against the world i'm the last beast under heaven my soul burns these songs like these are, these are the early songs where they were all on a lot of speed still Things changed when they got sober, but <laughs> these are the early works sounded just like you would expect a group of Germans on speed banging on metal to sound, which is to say, wonderful. They sound great.
I can't imagine myself ever having the guts to write a song about a genocide, but if I did, I hope it would sound as horrifying as that. And I also think that it demonstrates that the technology is only as important as where it gets you. It's a totally different approach to music, because you have to reinvent what you're doing every time you do it. My like own process of making this music began with environmental like banging. You know, like as a teenager, I would try to get friends together with me and would go down to the tracks and bang stuff on drumsticks and record it and see what we could get out of it. It was kind of like how skateboarders re reinvent this relationship to the environment that they're in by using it as a skateboard park, you know? This whole environment is some type of percussion instrument waiting to happen. <laughs> so let's check in with that chronology we were working on. We're damn near through with the chronology. Okay. Uh, so Late 90s, back in Europe. Mm -hmm. With Future Pop. Future Pop. Future Pop, also sometimes called Synth Pop, introduces like a psychological softness in terms of subject matter vulnerability, which is great. New technologies at that time make it a lot easier for people to make more complex music faster. The genre gets delineated pretty quickly and people get kind of tired of it pretty quickly. And nothing happens for another decade. Basically, nothing happens through the early 2000s. People are working in a real underground. There is a real underground that doesn't have any sort of like public recognition. People are continuing to make classic ambient industrial. Power noise happened. Power noise actually happened in the, in the end of the 90s. Power noise is a genre with no vocals and generally no melodies, uh, but a lot of rhythm and volume. It's basically just sort of like oscillating rhythmic noise. Great to trance out to, pretty good to drive your motorcycle to. Wonderful groups from that genre include Converter or Winterkalte. It's German for winter cold, Kalte, K-A-L-T-E, um, who are a group of old men who made this power noise music about, about ecological concerns. They, you know, their record, they would be like, factory tree farm. It was a protest music without lyrics, but it was about like their disgust with the destruction of the natural world in the form of this like punishing kind of stuff. Musical in a sense, but it's just noise. But to the best of my knowledge, there really wasn't that much going on at the early 2000s. Some of the kind of cultural DNA of industrial music appeared in Electro Clash, which was the name for this music that happened in the early 2000s that was like gay art school student electronic music. Crack W-A-R, Crack War, or Le Tigre. Don't you prison, don't. Don't you prison, don't. And then nothing happened again until very recently where all of these kinds of musics were mainstreamed really hard. There's a whole new kind of generation of people making goth and industrial music in the EBM mode. Looks that are allegedly derived from goth and industrial are in mainstream fashion right now. Uh, just the other day in a clothing pile, I found this pair of drop crotch faux leather sweatpants with like astrological symbols all over them, <laughs> which is like exactly the kind of thing that like, that's what the music sounds like too, is this like triple hybridization of this, like there's kind of like some hip hop elements in attitude, but not necessarily in the sound. Uh, and then like goth and industrial stuff, but like kind of more just like occult stuff, which is not a really interest, big interest of mine and not a really a very strong current in classic goth rock, honestly, but it's what people relate to now. So that's what they're going to do. So there's a, uh, the, the music of the moment is called dark wave. 
which combines some goth elements and some industrial elements. Usually there's a drum machine and a synth, but there's also like a romantic vocal and a guitar. A group that I like working in that mode is called Drab Majesty from Los Angeles. This is also a pretty queer music. The performer in Drab Majesty adopts a deliberately gender-ambiguous semi-drag persona. Uh, it's kind of read right now as a music for queer people, which is would be, I think, pretty accurate in terms of the goth tradition, but not the industrial tradition. A group from Brazil called Rakta, R-A-K-T-A, is wonderful. Boy Harsher is pretty good. They're more industrial than goth. The hybridization is so complete that it's hard to tell what is really who is what. And it, industrial's heritage of hyper-masculinity is regrettably showing now in what is happening presently in industrial music proper, which is this music called agrotech, uh, which sucks. I recommend that the listener not listen to any agrotech. It's kind of like new metal with synthesizers instead of guitars. It's just like what it sounds like. Agrotech. It's like a bunch of aggro young men. I don't know. It sucks. It's not, it's not interesting. <laughs> there's, other, there's other stuff that's interesting that's happening. You don't have to mess with that. Listen to Rakta. Listen to um, Belgrado. Belgrado are wonderful. They are Colombian? But they live in Serbia? Or the other way around? Another interesting thing about this moment in the kind of greater goth industrial universe is that all, a lot of it's happening in South America. Again, it's more goth than industrial because industrial is, is, hasn't come back in the same way, which makes sense to me because this is a, like culturally in the United States, this is a moment where we think about gender really hard and we think about not like it's not like likely for something that's this masculine in orientation to have a renaissance. Although I want to think for myself that that gives me the opportunity to work in, in, a, in a free street. There isn't the type of gender-critical or culturally-critical industrial music that I'd like to see. But because I'm part of this tradition that includes people both like Wolfsheim and like Throbbing Gristle, there's a space for me to produce music that has that strength, but also has that criticality. Like, it's possible for me to talk about my feelings. It's possible for me to confront something negative in my feelings or confront something negative in myself and talk about it with like a slamming 4-4 kick drum. Maschinen dieser Welt, Maschinen dieser Welt, Maschinen dieser Welt, bekämpft den falschen Held. Hey, this has been every record ever recorded. I'm Hannah, and my guest today was Kevin No, who's been making, listening to, and thinking about industrial music for about two decades now. Kevin records under the name No, and good luck Googling it, but you can find links to his music at our website, everyrecordeverrecorded.com, along with a list of all the songs you just heard and a bunch of other resources for further exploration of the genre. Deine Träume wahr Sie singt und tanzt und lacht 
We recorded this episode on a beautiful spring day in an about-to-be-evicted warehouse right next to the fire station. Thanks to Heartworm and Smurf for the engineering knowledge, the awesome foundation for the money, Crystal Davis for the solidarity and enthusiasm, and Walter Lang for the love. Come back next time for a new episode about a different musical genre, and hey, thank you for listening. So stolz doch winzig klein, sie muss was Deutsches sein. Die Deutschmaschine legt, die Deutschmaschine legt, die Deutschmaschine legt, die Deutschmaschine legt.